Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. We're especially glad that this means of, uh, of coming together will be concluding soon. And... Uh, we're looking forward to the conclusion of it. We'll have more to say about that next week. And uh, get your church clothes ready. You're not, you can't come in your pajamas once we're back together. We uh, are going to look this morning. We're going to conclude by God's goodness. And despite COVID, we're going to make it through the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, before uh, the, the, the start of the real summer. And uh, depends on how you count the summer starting. But... Uh, we're looking forward to getting through it, and, and, uh, and this morning we look at something towards the end, famous set of verses, uh, set of verses that have been often taken out of the context of this, of this passage and made to mean things that, uh, that may be true, but that need the context of the entire sermon to be understood. Those are verses 13 and 14. <laughs> Probably some of you can say them by heart. But let's stand together and read the word of God. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the words of Christ. They are forever true. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak through your word to us this morning. Guide our hearts into the, the narrow way that it is revealing. And I pray, Father, that you will guide my lips as I speak about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Cheryl's and my daughter, Tessa, came back just a few weeks ago because of the, um, the virus, came back early from her time in Washington, D.C. doing an internship. She's talked to us some about the church that she attended while she was there, which was a Baptist church very near Capitol Hill. And she said that it was a very good church, but that it was, and this is not a but that's adversative, that's saying contrary to it being a good church, but that she had come to realize that there is a a Baptist way of doing church. And I said, yes, it's, it's found often in the way they end their sermons, isn't it? And she said, yes, there's, whatever the sermon is, when it ends, there's not an altar call, but there is a call to make a decision. There is a call to take action. And regardless of what the sermon is about, the call to action is to trust Jesus. Always at the end, there's a call. Which is a good thing. And for this reason we honor the Baptists. Because they call people to Jesus. Jesus himself ends his sermon with a call. He, he, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that's taken directly from the teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ. Who, who declares doctrine and at the end calls people to obedience. Calls them to, to embrace what they've heard and to act on it. And that's what we have before us this morning. And that's what we're going to have before us in the next several weeks. Jesus calling us 
to put into practice the words that he's taught. In fact, at the end, he says very clearly, put into practice what I've said. If you listen to my words and, and don't put them into practice, you're building on sand. But if you listen to my words and you put them into practice, you're a man who's building his house on a rock. Very famous words, very famous call to put into practice. And that call begins in these verses. These verses are Jesus coming to an end. They are the conclusion of the sermon. It's the beginning of the end. And Jesus is calling us to obey. Now, in a certain sense, these words are are discouraging. In a certain sense, even, they might be seen as somewhat at odds with what Jesus has just said and the tenor of much of the, at least the middle part of this sermon. I say this because in these verses, Jesus describes the path in summary form that he has been laying out in much greater detail in the chapters before this, in the in the portion of the sermon that preceded this. And we have to think that that portion lasted many more minutes than it takes to read this aloud. That what we have here is sort of a telegraphic form of the sermon. The broad points, the main points. But that Jesus spelled this out in greater detail. And so when we come to the end here, what we have is a, a statement about what it looks like to live the way that Jesus has described. Remember chapter, the first chapter of the sermon, I think that, as I've said often, the, the sermon is well divided by those who divided it in the scripture into chapters. That there really are three main divisions and each of those is a chapter in the Bible. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Chapter 5 is about the righteousness that we must have if we are to inherit eternal life. Jesus describes true righteousness in that chapter. Defines it according to his definition and against a negative example which is the example of the scribes and the Pharisees and their righteousness. And he says to us, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never inherit eternal life. And so he goes through the Beatitudes describing the righteousness of his kingdom. And the remainder of that chapter is a description of what it's like. So he says, the scribes and the Pharisees, you've heard it said by these religious leaders that if you do this, you will be okay. But I say to you, and he says it about murder. And hatred, he says it about divorce and adultery, he says it about retaliation, he says it about loving your neighbor. In many ways, he spells it out. Then in chapter 6, Jesus describes the rewards of this life. And he, he makes it clear that we can't live for earthly reward if we're going to inherit his kingdom. That his kingdom has its own rewards. And they are different than and better than the rewards of this earth and its kingdoms. And so he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Don't give to the poor and sound a trumpet, or you'll have received your reward in full when you give to the poor. When you pray, don't be like those hypocrites who stand in the corners. And then he tells us how to pray. And so leavened throughout, interspersed through the sermon, are a variety of points where Jesus gives encouragement and says, hey, you can pray to your father this way. You don't have to live that way. Pray to your father. You don't have to do it for show. You don't have to do it with many words. You don't have to do it unctuously, you know, oh, God, oh, God. You can pray to God as your father, and you can do it normally. 
and he'll hear you. And so there are these statements that are encouraging throughout the midst of this sermon. But the general tenor of chapter 6 is that we must seek a reward that comes from God rather than the rewards of earth. Finally, chapter 7, Jesus speaks about judgment. How we are to judge things as his followers. How we are to see things. The grid through which we're to approach this life. The grid through which we're to, to judge this world and its pleasures and its foibles and the grid through which we must understand it being the grid of holiness and righteousness therefore there's much in this world that we're not going to see or we're going to see very differently than the world sees it so he says do not judge so that you not be judged do not give what is holy to dogs do not throw your pearls before swine all of these are statements about judgment then he speaks encouragingly and says by the way ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you he says that God judges you as a child and so it's still judgment but he's speaking there in encouraging ways saying God listens to you and he understands that you're his child God is judging God is knowing God is seeing and because of that you can go to him as his child and have complete faith and confidence in his good answers to everything you go to him about and that he'll never give you bad but then we turn to this these verses and it says Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is a, a passage that is as a challenge. In some ways, it's, it's a glorious challenge. Some years ago, I don't know how many of us remember the Marine Corps' billboards and their ad campaign that they used in their recruitment. And it said, the few, the proud, the Marines. Well, in a sense, that is reminiscent of Jesus saying this. Look, it's not many. It's, it's a chosen few. <laughs> of course, there's no pride in it. It's not that we've made it. It's that God has made us. And yet there is this, this sense of our being chosen and glorious. And, and yet the overall effect of this is, I think, it, it could be at least, and it has been at times for me, uh, discouraging. It, it, it makes it look like the, the path that we're following is a path of not apparent victory in the eyes of the world, at least. I'm not saying it's defeat, but it's small. It appears weak. It is not the majority position. And I love verses like those in Isaiah that say, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and all the nations shall go up to it. Those verses in the Bible which speak about God at the end making his way victorious, about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about us as being a city on the hill whose light shines and all people are drawn to it. And I like that. And yet... This verse seems to say, ah, but, <laughs> and I'd rather sort of dismiss this and say, no, it's many. It, it, it grows and it grows and it becomes broad and strong and powerful, which the Bible does say. And yet here Jesus says it's narrow, it's small, and it's few. So we have to deal with this. And in dealing with this, I hope I'm faithful to it and that we come to some understanding of what Jesus is saying. 
and that we choose this path. This sermon is a sermon where Jesus calls us to live for heaven, and he's doing that in these verses. There is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to destruction. There are two ways. The way that leads to life, he says, is narrow. It's small. And he actually doesn't use, although our, most of our translations say it's enter through the narrow gate, and then it describes, the, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And then it goes on about that first gate. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. He actually doesn't use in the Aramaic, in the Hebrew, which our Bibles have, the same word twice. He doesn't say narrow and narrow. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is small, and the way is compressed. It is, it is made small. It is, there's a sense of the camel going through the eye of the needle in this. It's compressed. It's made small. It, it is not a big Broadway, but God has made it small. And so what we, what we need to realize is that this way, that is the way of life, is narrow, is small, is compressed because God has made it that way. Because it is the way, ultimately, that Jesus has described throughout this sermon. And that is a way of, of holiness. And holiness is not popular. Holiness is not the path of the majority. Holiness is not easy. It's not that this way is small and narrow and few on it because only a few are called. And those few who are called are wandering down it with ease and it's just a great way for them. But there's only a few who are called. Not at all. Jesus is calling everyone to this way here. I mean, he's speaking to a vast crowd, including many who aren't Jews, and many who are Jews but who aren't following him, and some who are Jews and observant of Jewish religion and, and practices, but who don't really know him, and even some who are coming to worship him. But all of them are called. This is not a statement that is to the, to the few. This is a statement to the many, but it's describing a path that only a few will walk down. We need to remember that. This is a call to all to a narrow way. And the reason it's narrow is not because God has not called all. God has called all. Many are called, but few are chosen. Every one of us is called to this way. And if we turn this way, we will find the power of God to walk it. But it is a hard way. It is a difficult way. It is not the easy way. It's not the majority way. It's not the way that everyone walks on. And it is not always a pleasant way. Very often we're, we're told in churches today that, you know, if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be great. Just turn to him and you're going to find your life happy. You're going to find everything turning out well. And in one sense we say, yes, that's absolutely true. I think we saw something of that in our hearts resonated with it as we were listening to Emma speak a few moments ago. Yes, it's true. It's glorious. But Jesus here is emphasizing the other side of the coin, which is that though it's a glorious, God-filled way, though there's fellowship with others along the way, it is a few. It is not the majority path. And we must be careful in order to walk it. We must give it our attention to make our way down it. It is not the easy way. It is, it is narrow and few walk it because of the difficulty. And the broad way with many walking down it is broad and many are walking down it because it is easy. There's no constriction. There's no compression. 
the force of the law of God, the force of holiness is not applied to it. On the other hand, on the other way, it's narrow and it's disliked and it's hard because it's holy. We are seeking to please God. We are seeking to live by the will of God. And because we live by the will of God, we are not popular. Now, I want to say something to you, and I, I know that at least a third of our church works at Chick-fil-A. So I want to use Chick-fil-A for a moment as an example, because even if you don't work there, <laughs> you've gone there. And Chick-fil-A is known as a Christian place, right? Many, many Christians own Chick-fil-A's. It's really a, a glory in certain ways. Chick-fil-A has, has a service ethic that, is, that, that I think homeschooled Christian kids fit into well, you know? They're taught to be respectful, they're taught to be kind, they're taught to smile, and, uh, and Chick-fil-A is that kind of a place where people are kind, where they smile, where they say, my pleasure, where they say, what can I, how can I help you? They do it with cheerful faces. And you know, the funny thing is, it's a Christian place, and it's known for being Christian, but even the people who hate Christianity and hate Chick-fil-A for its Christian witness go there and eat there. And I don't think it's just the food. I think it's partly the atmosphere, that there is this atmosphere of kindness and niceness, and it's seen as being a place that is not run-of-the-mill because of the niceness of the people. There's, there's real niceness. Christians are to be nice, and yet Christians are told they need to be prepared to be hated. And, and so Chick-fil-A is not exactly a template for the Christian life. Because at Chick-fil-A, you're always trying to do what other people want. And, and that's the ethos, and that's right there. But in the Christian life, holiness is not only a positive thing in saying we want to live for God, we want to know God, we want to be like God. But it's a negative thing. And it says we don't want to be like that. We're turning our backs on that. There is a wrong way. There is a way that leads to destruction. There is destruction in the Christian way. Now, it's not in the future, but it's on the side, and people are walking there. And so, as Christians following Christ, we have to speak of this. We have to declare, not just a positive, nice message, God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. But we're also called to say that you must follow Jesus. And following Jesus means bearing fruit for Jesus, means being holy, and if you don't follow Jesus, the path you're on is destruction. Jesus makes this very clear. You are to be holy. And if you're holy, you'll be on a narrow way. I want to close this morning by speaking about something that happened over 350 years ago, almost 400 years ago now, in the United States. The Puritans came across the seas. Puritans came across from England, they sailed, the first of them on the Mayflower, and then generation after generation or successive waves of Puritans following that first group of Puritans that we know as the pilgrims who came on the Mayflower. They established small communities in New England. First thing they built often, a church. They had churches, they had small, and they died. They died and died and died. It was terrible. If you read stories of the initial days of the Puritan settlers in New England, they just died and died like flies. Just, 
you know, mortality rate <laughs> makes COVID look like uh, a Sunday in the park. They died and they died, but they built and they grew. And as they built and they grew, God blessed them. And their churches became taller and they started adding steeples and they, they began to have money because they had land and they were making cash crops, not just subsistence farming. And their dedication to the Puritan work ethic made them, made them prosperous over time. So much so that by the 1650s, the first wave, the first generation of settlers that had come across from England were now getting older and their children were becoming adults. And their children were coming into the church, but they were not professing to have been saved. They were leading moral lives, lives they were taught to live by their parents, at least externally, uh, visibly moral. Um, they were willing, they were baptized as infants in the church. They were willing to be part of the church, but they could not give a testimony to the church of salvation, of God having worked in their lives. And the parents, as they grew older, saw their adult children beginning to be part of the church and raising families in the church, but because they had not become communicant members, which is as you become an adult and give testimony to God's work in you, you can take communion, the second of the sacraments. They had received the first as infants, baptism. They had not received permission to do the second. So the children were in the church, baptized, but not communicating, not communing. And, and so the parents became worried because what, what this meant was that the children of their children, their grandchildren, could not be baptized. Because their children, their adult children, had never become communing members of the church had never testified to God's work in their lives. And so in the, 19, in the 1660s, the Puritans of New England, the congregational churches, came together and they, they came up with a policy that was in existence for the next 80 or 100 years, which was called the Halfway Covenant. That Halfway Covenant is famous. You may have heard of it. What it was was a statement that was endorsed by all the churches that if a child has been baptized into the church as an infant and has grown up in the church and has not visibly departed from the church but has no personal testimony of God's converting them from their sin to Jesus Christ and the new life. If they remain in the church and if they continue to lead good lives, their children would be allowed to be baptized, though the parents would still not be communing members. They would not be granted communion. And so what happened was that the children of those who had sacrificed were, were not experiencing the same things their parents had. And their parents thought, well, we've got to cut corners for them. We've got to make it possible for them to remain in the church. What will happen if our grandchildren are not baptized? Now, it's said by some that this was the end of Puritanism. That Puritanism died when the halfway covenant became embraced, endorsed in the 1660s. Because it no longer demanded evidence that Jesus had come in and made the person new. 
just being good and having been baptized was enough. Others said it was a, a retreat from the sectarian practices of Puritanism. They described it as a good movement. The Puritans are no longer being so stridently particular about what it means to be a Christian. Honestly, I, I don't know which of these sides I'm on. In certain respects, demanding that everyone have the same story I have of coming out of full-on rebellion and a life that was lived at huge variance from the law of God and, and thus coming to know Jesus as a flash in the, in the night, as sort of like Paul on the way to Damascus. I know that that's not how everyone comes to know Jesus. I know that there are those who are born again who aren't born again on a road to Damascus. And so I think that it's, it's dangerous as a church to become too particular in what we demand of members. And I, I don't want to go back to having everyone have to say a very powerful conversion story out of darkness. And yet if we turn aside from the expectation that we will be born again, this is what we love about the Baptists, isn't it? That at the end of every sermon, they say, you must be born again. You must be born again. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Can we ever say that too often? You must be born again. Have you been born again? You don't get born again and not know it. Now, it may not be a flash of lightning from heaven. It may not be as Paul had it on the road to Damascus. But no one is born again without knowing it. No one is made new. No one is brought as a son to the Father, God in heaven. No one has their prayers answered and is unaware of it. And so I want to close by saying, as the church goes, I think we are going to understand that the demands of the Puritans for membership were perhaps too strong. But I want to speak to those of you who are parents this morning. And I want to say to you that in a sense, in this church, where we are now, we're like the Puritans. And our children are growing up. And they're becoming adults around us. And it may well be that our children have not experienced the pains that we did in following Jesus. Have not gone through the struggles that God called us through. And like the Puritans of the 1660s, we may want to say, oh, there's an easy path. You don't have to be as full-on Christian as I was. Perhaps it's wisdom in us to say that. Perhaps it's weakness. But the reality is, as we look at our children, and as we look at the raising of our children to adulthood, and we think about them, we must keep this verse in mind. The way of holiness is hated. There has never been a holy man or a holy woman whose life was not lonely. This is scriptural truth. If you can read the book of Psalms and think that the way of obedience and holiness is easy and popular, then you have a different approach to reading than I have. Honestly, the book of Psalms is a book of comfort for those who are struggling to follow Jesus, who are being hated as they follow Jesus, 
people are finding what Jesus says here to be true, that the way is narrow and there are few that are on it. And we must raise our children to be the narrow and the few. Not in pride. Not giving them some idea that they're special because they're chosen. Narrow because they are living for God. Because we're calling them to the holiness that Jesus has preached in this sermon. Are you calling your children to the holiness of Christ? Are you expecting that your children will grow up to manifest the character that is shown in this chapter? In this sermon? Are you living in this way yourself? Or have you found that the way as you go along gets broader and easier? That's a scary thought. Has your way gotten broader? Is your way easier? Have you found that you can be on the Broadway with many people? Are you telling your children that they don't need to know what it is to be born again? It's, it's hard to be lonely. No one likes being, being alone. But I want to end with the words of J.C. Ryle. Who says of this passage, we have no reason to be discouraged and cast down if the religion we profess is not popular and few agree with us. We must remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage, small is the gate. Repentance, faith in Christ, and holiness of life have never been fashionable. The true flock of Christ has always been small. We must not mind if we are thought singular and peculiar and bigoted and narrow-minded. This is the narrow road. Surely it is better to enter into life eternal with a few than to go to destruction with a great company. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your son. We know that the promises that you have given us through your son in this sermon, that you will hear us that you love us, that we can come to you, that your power is available to us. Our promises that, are, that have a purpose. It's not to make us proud. It's not to make us feel like we're grand and glorious. It's to give us the courage and the strength to persevere on this narrow road. May we follow this narrow road. May we reach eternal life. May we fly from the broad way that many are on. May we understand the glory of standing alone for Jesus. Give us as a church another generation and another generation, Father, where the narrow road is the path that is chosen and followed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.